Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 141. It's September 26, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, thanks for stopping by the podcast today. This episode is going to be dedicated to talking about where we're at in this very murky market. We've seen a great deal of volatility over the last two weeks. I want to cover that with specifics and then more importantly, on a higher level, I want to talk about these areas of weakness. So even if you're listening to this podcast years into the future, you can use these principles and these concepts to help you think through and evaluate the downtrend that you may be in. So while the examples I'll be using will be specific to where we are right now in this present downtrend, the concepts apply to all pullbacks. We've got a lot of ground to cover. I'm sure that this is going to take more time than I'm initially attending for it. So let's call this part one of a two-part series. Now, because we're in an audio format, I am going to try and keep this at a high level and not talk too much about numbers. I know many of you are driving while you listen to this podcast, while you're commuting to work. And while you can always rewind or go back and listen, it's always hard to talk about numbers and keep them in your head. So I will refer you back to my website at wealthsteading.com. There you'll find my blog, which is under the heading of Observations and Commentary. The two most recent articles that I've posted both have graphs, and a lot of the numbers and the levels and things that I'm talking about can be visually seen there. So check that out, investablewealth.com, Observations and Commentary section. And then as always, don't forget, it's free to subscribe to those blog posts. You won't get hit with any spam. You only get a notification in the article that I actually post up at the website. Look through the archives. See if that type of information is valuable to you. If you think it is, go ahead and subscribe. If you don't like it, it's easy to unsubscribe. So let's jump right in and talk about this market correction. First off, I will say that I think the U.S. dollar is holding up quite well. If you remember an episode or so ago, I had mentioned that I was cautiously watching the dollar. I think overall the dollar has a lot of strength against other world currencies. I still think it's a good place to invest. However, I also know that the market doesn't care what I think. And so rather than argue with the market, I make decisions based on where I'm seeing price and volume moving. And things were not looking overly favorable for the dollar. It has pulled out of that. It's back at what I think is an acceptable level, um, just barely above its 200-day moving average. But I'll keep that. That puts my dollar position back in the black. I think the things that we've been talking about are continuing to play out. The only way the Japanese and the Europeans can sustain the small amount of momentum that they've gathered is by continuing to devaluate their currency. So whether the United States Federal Reserve decides to raise interest rates or not, I don't think that matters. These other major economies are going to keep devaluating one way or the other. So in real terms, the U.S. dollar will continue to strengthen. That's my position. It's been my position for quite a long time. With the move up in the dollar this week, it's looking like the market is coming more in line with what I've been believing. And so I remain long in the U.S. dollar with an overweighted position. I do that with a couple different exchange-traded funds, the largest of which being is uh, UUP, that's Uniform Uniform Papa. I'm not making any recommendations. I'm not providing you with any advice. I never do that in the podcast. I just give you an idea of what my positions are and try and explain my rationale for those positions. Take that for what it's worth, but I see investing directly in the strength of the U.S. dollar against a basket of other currencies as being the safest place right now, and I use safe in quotations, the safest place to get some appreciation should things move up 
and then not have as much of a downside should things continue to fall apart. And you're going to hear in this episode that I do believe that we are probably likely to see things continue to fall apart. Now, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't have any inside information, but I'll provide you with my rationale as we go along in this episode, and you can use that to form your own investment strategy. So let's talk about some things that have happened in the last two weeks. These are not necessarily in any particular order. I'm kind of going off the top of my head here. So I don't want you to put more of an emphasis on one event more than another. And again, that is important should you be listening to this podcast at some point in the future, because the real essence in the Wealth Studying Podcast is not to only talk about current events, but to talk about wealth building principles in general. And so in today's episode, as we talk about the stock market, what we're really focusing in and honing in on is wealth building principle number six, which is profit from trends. So we always want to be looking for trends because we know things in the stock market, in the economy, and things just in nature in general, in the, the course of the interaction of human beings. Things move in patterns, they move in waves, and we can profit from that by trying to identify these trends while they're taking place. That's really the key thing here is, right, we're not trying to be Nostradamus and figure out what's happening three years into the future. We're looking at what's happening now. Where can we make investments today and tomorrow and next week, which could be profitable over the coming weeks and months? I'm a swing trader. I'm looking at market timing principles, and that's why I think it's so critical that we try and identify trends. The best way to do that is to look for anomalies, look for things that are different. Early on, it may require you to be a bit of a contrarian, to see things before the crowd does, but you really can't ever profit in the market unless you're moving with the crowd. You see, the crowd controls everything. I base this on fundamental economic principles of supply and demand. If you have a product or service and a lot of people want to buy it, right, you have a, a large demand, that means that the price will go up. And then likewise, if no one wants to buy your product or service, the price will come down. Well, that's the same way with the stock market. If everybody wants to rush into utility stocks or pharmaceuticals or the financial sector, then stocks in those sectors will go up. And likewise, if no one wants to own the housing sector or they don't want to buy Home Depot, then those stocks will come down. It's really that simple. You look for when sentiment in a particular sector or in a particular stock is starting to wane or when the enthusiasm is starting to build in a different area. That's, that's why it's an anomaly. Something different is happening than what was most recently occurring. That's the change. Now, you can't see into the future, so you can't predict that change three weeks from now. But you can be looking at the market today. You can be looking at price and volume. You can be looking at relative strength from one sector to another, or one stock to another, or one exchange to another. And then by looking at those differences, you can see where sentiment and money is flowing, either flowing into or flowing out of. That can allow you to jump into the trend before the rest of the market does or to jump out of it in the case of being in a downtrend. So when I talk about market timing and you hear the people, you know, criticize or critique saying, well, no one can time the market because no one can see the future. No crystal ball is required here. We're not predicting the future. We're just looking at the crowd. We're looking at the herd, the herd of retail investors, the herd of institutional investors, the pension funds, the mutual funds, the hedge funds. We're watching where they're moving and we can see their prints and their patterns and the trails they leave. And then with our swing trading methods, we try and make some analysis and determine which of those trails we should follow, right? Which horse are we going to ride to future profits? 
It's as simple and as complicated as that. I do want to digress here a second and talk about shorting the market. Uh, many people have been asking me, well, if you think the market's going down, why aren't you shorting it? The primary reason I'm not shorting this market is because of the too-big-to-fail mentality that we have. Over the last six years, anytime there's been a major pullback in the market or some type of disruption, the Federal Reserve, uh, you know, the central bank in the U.S., as well as central banks around the world, they have stepped in to prop up the economy. You can't fight the Federal Reserve. And even though I think that confidence is starting to lack in the, in the U.S. Federal Reserve and that we're getting maybe even beyond the diminishing returns of what their fiscal policies can produce, they still have a very large cannon they can fire anytime they want. They have the ability to create money out of thin air. And so I never try and fight the Federal Reserve. I wouldn't want to short this market and then the next day have Janet Yellen come out and say that they're going to start quantitative easing for. That could wipe you out in a market like we're in, where everybody has faith in this, you know, too big to fail Keynesian philosophy that the government and the central banks can come in and prop up these markets indefinitely. The other thing to keep in mind is that we're not seeing any major corrections take place. We haven't had a 20% correction since 2011. And although I think that conditions are now right for that, for that 20% or more correction to be taking place, you have to look at the personality of the market and the personality of this market since 2009, is to always bounce back because the big institutional investors have always come in over these last six years and bought on the dips. Well, they haven't been doing that over the past few weeks, but that doesn't mean that they won't. And again, if we came in with a big uh, central bank quantitative easing for program, there's no doubt in my mind that the institutional investors would plow back into this market. And if you're taking a short position, you could lose your money really quickly. So that's why I'm not shorting the market. That's why I prefer to have my money either 100% in cash in a money market type fund where it's very safe or to have an overweighted position as I do in the U.S. dollar. So let's look at these key signs or negative signs that I see in the market that lead me to believe that we're going to see further downtrends. So first and foremost, what I see in the price action volume, and I'm going to be speaking specifically about the S&P 500, but it's pretty much the same story in the NASDAQ, the Dow, and in uh, overseas markets as well. Go out and look at the German market, look at the Japanese market, look at the Chinese market, look at Brazil, look at Russia. They're all down. In most cases, they're down to where their 50-day moving average has crossed below their 200-day moving average. And any attempt at making a rally is falling apart. And so that's the key thing that I want to talk about right now in this segment. And that's the momentum of a market. Now, if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 that's taken place since October 1st, the market has made three attempts to have a rally since the bottoms that we saw that occurred on August 24th and 25th. Now, why I want to focus our attention to that September 1st time frame is remember that that's the end of the, uh, the summer vacation season. There's always a slowdown and a lull. Uh, June, July, and August, people take vacations. There's not as much going on in economic news. So generally, trading volume is lower over those summer months. After Labor Day, though, everybody comes back in, all the traders are, are back actively trading, and things start to pick up on the economic calendar. The third quarter always sets the pace for how the year ends and whether we will or won't go into a Santa Claus rally in December. If we look at September 1st, 2015, we'll see that that was the first rally attempt after the, uh, the downtrend that we saw on October 24th and 25th. That was the first rally attempt 
that failed. Now, the good news in that was that not only the market closed, but also the interday lows were significantly above the lows that we had seen on August 24th and 25th. So that's good news. We didn't retest the lows. We stayed well above the lows. And so when you're looking to make a market rally or for the market to go on to new highs, that can only occur when the market has higher highs and higher lows. So that pullback on September 1st was a negative sign, but the fact that it stayed above the lows that occurred on August 24th and 25th, that was a good sign because that gave us a higher low. The bad news, though, is is that a few days later, about four or five trading sessions later, the market again tried to rally up and go on to make a new high, but it didn't. It petered out again. The rally fell apart. However, from a good news standpoint, over the next few days, the lows that occurred were above the lows that occurred September 1st, Although we didn't get a higher high, at least we're getting higher lows. That's a positive thing. If you would look on a chart of the S&P 500, and if you looked at one that showed the interday price range, that's where you have a long bar showing where the market opened, where the market closed, and then what the high and the low were for the day. You would see that since mid-August, the S&P 500 was basically forming an arrowhead. It was an arrow pointing to the right. And that arrow point was focusing and coming in a little bit above 1950, maybe 1960 on the S&P 500. And the trading range for each day was getting smaller, right? That's why it was forming an arrowhead. The arrowhead was forming because the left side of the chart had very long, deep variations from high to low. And so that was forming the broad base of like a triangle or of a pyramid. The volatility was tightening up not only in intraday trade, but also from day to day. So it was getting narrower. It was forming the point of a triangle or the point of an arrowhead. Again, that was good news because that showed consolidation. That showed that the market was trying to find a mid-range or a point of stability. It was trying to find a point of equilibrium. And that's good when the market forms that base or forms that consolidation period because we know that a stock market can only have three events. It can go up, it can come down, or it can stay the same. So if it goes through a period where it's staying the same, we know that that is going to result in only one of two events. It's either going to go up or it's going to go down. Now, while we can't predict the future, it's better to know that you're going into a period of only two events versus three because now that narrows your odds down to like a 50-50. That consolidation period or that base building period is also very important because if you're not going into a full-blown recession or, you know, just a total economic meltdown, you know that at some point the market is going to go back up. So again, that further helps you when you're calculating your odds as to whether the outcome is going to be up or down. Well, it looked like the market was going to break out. We'll, in a few minutes, come back and discuss why. But from a negative standpoint, the bad news is, is that within three or four trading sessions, the market again failed, this time failed for its third time to break out into a rally. Not only did the market fail, but even though it was intraday able to break above the 2000 level on the S&P 500, it ended up closing well below the 2000 level, which means to us that there is firm resistance somewhere around that 1990 to 2000 level. There's a very hard resistance there. We've talked about that in the past. That's a very important, not only psychological level, but also a level from where previous support had been established. And so now that turns into resistance when you're below that level. 
So that validates it for us. So not only did that occur, but things soon deteriorated. And over the next week or so, the market dropped down to test those lows. But what we saw was that in just a little more than a week, the market collapsed from its third rally attempt. And from peak to trough over only about six trading sessions, we saw that third attempted rally collapse and fall apart over 4%. So anybody trying to buy into that breakout just over a period of a few days could have lost over 4% of their money very quickly. The other negative in this is remember that arrowhead that I, that I pointed out that was coming to an apex somewhere above 1950, trying to reach a consolidation point. Well, we've broken down below that. And so I think that it's pretty safe to say that just a few months ago, uh, when we saw the personality of the stock market where the S&P 500 had a baseline of around 2100. Remember, this was a very tight market that was just moving sideways. The market would move a little bit below 2100. It would move a little bit above 2100, but it pretty much oscillated and fluctuated around 2100. Well, now it definitely looks evident that the personality of this phase of the market is that we're going to see that same consolidation and vacillation. But at best, that baseline has now been moved to about 1950. And again, I know I promised I wouldn't be talking about a lot of numbers. This is charted out over at the observation and commentary section of investablewealth.com. So you, you can see what I'm talking about over there when I talk about this baseline. But that baseline, which had been very firm and very established at 2100 as, you know, as nearly ago as just early August, well, now that has moved down to at least 1950. That's more than a 7% drop. And these negative signs that we're going to be talking about lead me to believe that that's not going to be the lowest point. So let's go on to the next point. Something else is very concerning to me about this market is that we've had about 18 or so trading sessions. And of those, 10 of them have been down days. They've been days where the market closed lower than it had the previous day. So 10 out of 18 is obviously not a good number. Uh, just imagine you have a tug of war occurring where you have investors on one side that are pulling the market down and you have investors on the other side of the rope that are pulling the market up. 10 of those days, the, the bears that are pulling the market down, they're winning. And they're not only winning in a digital sense of on or off, but they're also winning in terms of magnitude or amplitude. Because in the days that the market went down, it generally went down in higher volume. In fact, the market has only a traded in above average volume on four days. And guess what? All four of those days were major down days. The largest of those down days where we had the greatest volume occurred right after that third attempted and failed rally attempt. We had a major pullback and it occurred in significantly higher volume than average. Again, these are all bad signs and simple concepts of supply and demand. Another problem that I see with this market is the lack of leadership, the lack of individual sectors or individual stocks showing leadership that are trying to break out of this downtrend. The market always follows leadership. It follows leadership up and it follows leadership down. And again, we have a tug of war going on here. You have companies like Caterpillar, which are on the negative side. They're on the decline. Caterpillar is being drastically impacted by a decline in, in mining and overall heavy equipment use. A lot of that is because of the slowdown in China, but it really is a global phenomenon. Earlier this week, Caterpillar uh, again reassessed their situation. 
They provided more negative uh, forward guidance. They laid off, I think, another 10,000 employees. They talked about additional plant closings. So that's an example of where a Dow Jones component, a very large blue chip, uh, high dividend paying stock is negative, it's bearish, it's pulling to the downside. Now on the other side of that tug of war rope, you had Nike. Nike this week came out increasing their forward guidance. They had a blowout quarter in terms of not only earnings, but also increased revenue and sales. That was trying to pull the market upward. That was trying to pull the market into a rally or into a bull status. And that looked like that's exactly what was going to happen this past Friday. In fact, when Nike announced the earnings Thursday after the close, we saw very positive action and acceptance of almost all the global markets. You know, for example, the European markets were all up over, over, uh, 2%. You know, Germany in particular really rallied that next day. And you have to assume a lot of that had to be because of the leadership that was coming out of Nike. That was an example that consumer discretionary products, you know, consumer consumptive type products, particularly those on the high end, are going to be favored. And so the markets like that. And our market here in the U.S. opened up as well. It opened higher, but again, a negative sign. It had a very big pullback. By the end of the day, it had a negative reversal in the last hour or so of trading. The market closed down lower on Friday than it had been trading over the previous two weeks. So again, very bad sign that we're seeing the leadership favoring the negative elements of the market, the uh, Caterpillar-driven type stocks versus the more successful Nike type stocks. The other negative in this market is you heard me just say that after Nike announced earnings, most of the global markets rallied on that news and closed up the following day. Well, that was all the major markets except for China. Again, China is the big thing that we've been watching for many months. That's where the slowdown originates. That's the second largest economy in the world. That's what's having a big impact on pulling down commodity prices. And companies that manufacture producer-type uh, products like Caterpillar, as well as currency depreciations, these all originate with China. Well, China's market was down. It was down well over 1%. China's market continues to fall. And this is after the Chinese government has pulled out all the stops to not only rally their stock market, but stabilize their GDP. And that's not occurring. Their market continues to fall and their GDP continues to stagnate. This is a sign that maybe we've reached a point of diminishing return and that despite all the government intervention and all the central bank money printing, that the markets will still decline. Okay, so that's bad news for not only the global economy, but especially for the U.S. economy because we've been one of the originators of quantitative easing. That's why I think these market rallies have been failing and again, why I think we're going to see the stock market further deteriorate. I think we've covered enough for today. Let's end it here. If you think that's pessimistic, come back for part two and you'll see what I really think about where this economy is headed. Until then, as always, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.